and welcome to the Vino Karma Show. I am Amanda Layden, the founder and CEO and your host. Today, we have a really special guest, Anne McHale. Anne is an award-winning master of wine communicator and consultant based in London. She was born and raised in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland are two separate places, um, even on the same island, though. And she went on to read French and classics at Christ's College in Cambridge. That is a lot of C's. After graduating with first class honors, Anne moved to London and joined the wine trade, working for businesses as diverse as Mistral Wines, New Zealand Wines, the John Lewis Partnership, and Barry Brothers and Rudd, where she worked for 10 years as an integral part of the wine school team. Anne is going to tell you more about who she is and what she does in the industry. Welcome to the show, Anne. It's so good to see you. Thank you, Amanda. Great to see you too. And thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I can't wait until we tell people how we actually know each other because it's actually very funny. Um, in my mind, it's pretty funny because of this stage of our lives that we were in. But I want you to tell folks who you are and what you do in the wine industry. We shared a little bit about your background at Berry Brothers and Red, but can you just give some more context in terms of who you are? Of course. Yeah. So um, you've, you've kind of uh, done uh, most of my career so far, um, but I thought I would just add a little bit about how I fell into this amazing industry, which is because uh, my dad is a wine lover and I grew up, you know, uh, having my parents drink wine with every meal. And it was something that I kind of grew up with and got used to seeing. Um, my dad always talked about how he had very uh, proudly founded the first ever student wine society at Queen's University in Belfast in the late 1960s. And that was a, a feature of, you know, what we talked about. He was always saying, oh, in the wine society days, we would drink, you know, the best claret for free and this kind of thing. And I found it very intriguing. So the first society that I signed up to when I joined Cambridge University was the wine society. Uh, but nobody ever tells you in the careers office that wine is a career perhaps they're they're better at that these days uh, but they didn't then so I fell into it through my French speaking skills so I got a job in one of the companies you mentioned Mistral Wines which was a small family-owned company in London which was importing French wine mainly Rhone wine uh, into the UK and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, but after my 10 years at Berry Brothers and Rudd, uh, I stepped out on my own. So I set up my own consultancy and that's what I still do. So I have a range of clients uh, up until the pandemic hit. I was working with restaurants, designing wine lists. That's tailed off a bit, but I'm sure that's going to pick up again. Uh, I also do a lot of uh, education uh, at every level from beginner right through to master of wine. Uh, and so, yeah, that would be, those are my main focal points. So uh, I work also uh, as brand ambassador occasionally for, for example, uh, I had a champagne client uh, and I would do quite regular work with uh, the Beaujolais generic marketing body presenting to the trade because my master of wine dissertation was on the topic of Beaujolais. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea of the diversity of things I cover. I love it so much. So we mainly have an American audience and you said something that they may or may not 
know about, well, a couple of things that we're going to dig into, but the first term you used was claret. So can you define that for our audience so they know what that is? Of course. Yeah. And it is, it's a very traditional English term and it was actually uh, coined by the English from a French word. They corrupted a French word. The French word is clare with an I in it. And that referred originally to a sort of dark rosé made in Bordeaux. Uh, but the English changed it, called it claret and made it mean red wine from Bordeaux. So that's all it means. It can be kind of uh, every level, at, you know, inexpensive claret right up to Chateau Lafitte. Awesome. That is great because I think some folks probably don't know that. The other thing that is really important, I think, for people to understand in terms of wine is your distinctions, your education, what you've done to actually get to where you are. So um, you have a master of wine and there are 416 in the world, correct? Correct. And you are one of the females, one of the women who has the master of wine, and there are only 149 of them. So that is really impressive. And I think I learned yesterday from uh, a mutual friend, your friend, Martin Reyes, that more people have gone to space than actually have a master of wine. <laughs> so, um, so can you tell people what that actually means, what the education is and how you go about uh, getting your master of wine? Of course, yeah. So the Institute of Masters of Wine is a body which was established in London in the UK in 1953. And it was to create a group of people who would be authoritative enough about wine that they could kind of give quality assurances because at that stage there was a lot of fraudulent wine being shipped into the UK. Over the decades, it gradually became a more and more global organization with a global membership. Many more women began to be welcomed into the membership. Um, and I would say it moved in a more academic direction. It began uh, solely for people working as wine merchants and then it kind of expanded out. So in order to become a master of wine these days, you need to pass an entry exam. One of the requirements is that you have to have uh, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust Diploma or equivalent level of education in wine, such as a degree in enology. Um, you also have to have been working in the, the wine business for a minimum number of years. Uh, if you're granted entry into the program, then you spend at least three years studying. Stage one, you will, you know, have an introduction to the program. You'll take a set of exams at the end of that year, one testing, one theory exam. And stage two is where it gets really intense because at the end of stage two, you'll be assessed with five theory papers and three blind testing exams. If you get through all of that, you then move on to the research paper, which is an independent research assignment. Wow. So, you know, I'm sure people can imagine that there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people do not even attempt to, to get their Master of Wine because it is so, so tough. Um, so for people who are sitting those exams, how do you go about preparing for it? Well, we do have a study program. So uh, I've been involved since I became a Master of Wine uh, in the in delivering the study program. Each student is assigned a mentor. There is a syllabus. Uh, so we do direct students. Uh, a lot of it, though, is very self-motivated. So 
we kind of say, here are, uh, here's the syllabus, here are the past exam questions, and we'll guide you in how you prepare, how you absorb information, and how you convey it to the examiners. It is entirely a written examination, which makes it quite different from the Master Sommelier. Both are at an equivalent level of difficulty, I would say, but they're assessed in different ways and they assess different skills. So uh, one of the, the skills that you do need to acquire to become a Master of Wine, if you haven't got that skill already, is to be an excellent written communicator. So that is a challenge for, for some people who come into the program uh, because perhaps they have a very practical background and that is something that, that they need to develop. But, you know, with enough hard work and focus, I think anyone can achieve it, uh, but it's certainly not easy. And I shed a <laughs> lot of tears over my years of study. And, you know, I, I also think it's important you're studying. So when you, when you sit the exams, as you said, there are three blind tastings. So that means that, you know, maybe, maybe share with folks what you actually have to get right in order to pass that element of the exam. So you get asked uh, a range of different question types. Quite often the wines will be grouped into flights. So it's not as if, you know, you're given each of the 12 wines in the exam in isolation and you're asked to just speak about it. You are given clues. So uh, it might be these three white wines are all from the same region. Um, what is the region you know give as close as possible an origin for the region with justification and the with justification is the key part because even if you go off track slightly you are allocated marks for your reasoning uh, you can never you can't really pass the exam if you're not identifying a decent percentage of the wines accurately but you can pick up a lot of marks along the way if your reasoning is good, you can also pick up marks for analyzing the quality level correctly, even if you've gone off piste with the grape variety or the origin. Uh, so questions are asked on things like that, uh, origin, grape variety, quality level, commercial positioning of the wine. Winemaking is frequently asked. Sometimes you'll be asked for the vintage if it's a very classic region where it's possible to identify vintage. Uh, so hopefully that gives you an idea of the kinds of questions that, that come up. It's, I mean, I can imagine, we're, we're going to talk about how we met, but I can imagine how tough that is uh, to do. And, you know, if you think about it, when you're preparing for these exams, how much wine you have to taste. <laughs> people don't realize it's like, a, it's a skill that you have to keep up with. You know, I, when people, and you know, so we met studying for our diploma and we'll talk about that in a second. And I remember when we met studying for our diploma, how much wine we were tasting back then. And it used to be a party trick. People would say, you know, oh, can you identify what this grape is, where it's from and the year? And huh, huh, I bet you can't do it. And there'd be that, that happened to me several times where bets would be placed and I would win money from, taste, <laughs> from tasting and identifying. Um, but it's really hard. It's like if you're a top athlete and you're not keeping up with whatever it is you do, whether you're a footballer or you play baseball or whatever it is you do. Um, it's a really, really, I think, interesting skill to have to learn and know, and also just the amount of wine that you have been had the pleasure of tasting throughout your career must be immense. Yeah, I tasted a lot of wines. There were some days when 
I was just so sick of wine by the end of the day that I almost felt like never looking at a glass of wine again. But remarkably, you know, it seemed to be reset when I woke up the next morning and I was happy to go back to it. Um, so let's let's share with people how we know each other. So I mentioned the WSET diploma. Um, and Anne was I were you the t- you were the top student, right? I mean, in like all of our class. I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure. But, but how many how many say that again? We met in the second semester, didn't we? And we formed a little group of uh of students who all tasted together. Yeah, I think we tasted almost weekly and there were five of us. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And it was just a real fun group of people. Some of us more studious than others. Um, Anne and <laughs> some of us really there to uh, to have fun and enjoy it. And also, but, you know, sitting those exams was really tough as well. You actually you. So at the time you were working for Barry Brothers and Rudd and you won the Vintners Cup and Scholarship for the top UK students. I did. So that, that therefore means you were, I think, the number one student sitting the diploma. <laughs> but I don't remember how many people were actually sitting the diploma at the time. Do you have any clue? Mm, I'm not sure. I think uh, these days it has expanded to several thousand globally who sit wow. the every year uh but I couldn't tell you how many there were at that time we you and I were taking it in the sort of flagship head school which is based in London and they do have the largest numbers of students that go through it every year every year but not sure of the exact figure it was it was hard and so much fun as well you know I I come from a place in the United States I come I'm from Iowa and I did not grow up with wine on my table And well, if I did, it was like a jug of white Zinfandel, um, which no disrespect to those people who like white Zinfandel, but it's not the most prestigious of wines. So, um, you know, sitting the diploma in London at the flagship school, it was a really, really incredible experience. And the fact that we got to meet one another and see and the, the five of us who were in the group see each other's trajectories in the trade. Um, and you know, you are the only one of the five of us. And I think the only one I know sitting the diploma at the same time who actually went on to get her MW. That is right. It was the only one insane enough to uh, put myself through that. (laughs) (laughs) So tell people who haven't been to London or who don't understand the the history, um, of wine in London, what Barry Brothers and Rudd is all about, and, um, you know, the, the historical context of it as well. Yeah, sure. I think um, even people in the UK uh, who are new to wine, um, and certainly a lot of people from outside the UK, particularly in maybe traditional wine producing countries like France, are always very surprised that all these prestigious educational bodies were established in the UK because I mentioned that that's where the Institute of Masters of Wine was founded and also the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, the WSET that you've just mentioned. Um, we, we have more and more of a reputation in the UK now for our, for our wine, particularly our sparkling, but historically we haven't had a reputation. And so people think, why are all these prestigious bodies based in the UK? Well, if you think it through, it's actually quite logical because we 
didn't historically produce a lot of our own wine, we had to import it. And the British wine trade goes back centuries. Uh, and as a result, in, in London particularly, we've always traditionally had the widest range of wines from everywhere in the world that you can get hold of uh, anywhere from anywhere else um, compared to anywhere else, I should say. And it's because of that that we developed the expertise in knowing about wines from everywhere. So if you go to a, a country like France, there'll be great expertise there, but primarily in their own wine regions, their own wines, because they haven't needed to import wine. And as a result, they haven't had to learn about it. So that's the simple reason why London, you know, has got all these great educational bodies. Uh, Berry Brothers and Rudd is also a, a fascinating company because I would say it's very closely tied in with this history of wine importing into the UK. The company was founded as far back as 1698. Uh, it's still owned by the <laughs> Berry and the Rudd families. Uh, and uh, it's just, it's an amazing place to visit as well. If you go there, you can uh, see their 300 year old cellars and read all about the history of the company. Uh, so I was very privileged to be working there whilst studying for the Master of Wine. Uh, they, they, they very much supported me uh, through the program. And they, you know, I also had the chance to taste just an incredible range of wines there. So yeah, it was a special place to be. So what, you know, you've been in the trade quite some time now, and what changes have you seen, say, over the past decade or so? For me, uh, what I've noticed the most is the, the, the way that consumers interact with wine has evolved a lot. Of course, I'm not really in a place to speak very broadly, but in my own kind of bubble of what I observe in London uh, and my experience uh, uh, with designing restaurant wine lists, I see more willingness to explore. Um, you see a whole, you know, before the pandemic, there was this constant springing up of new wine bars where they would serve everything by the glass, where you would be drinking wines uh, from destinations you'd never thought of before. Croatian wine, Slovenian wine, lots of new Greek wines. Um, I mean, that's only the beginning. I, so many I could list. Uh, so I've seen more uh, desire to explore and go away from, you know, the, the old trusted favorites. Uh, also a big growth in the rise of people becoming more aware of things like organic wine, um, to a certain extent, biodynamic and vegan wine. Uh, we started to make sure that we printed the, you know, that on menus uh, to give that information to people because people were asking about it. Yeah, I think uh, and over the last decade as well, there's been a huge uh, acceptance in the idea of screw caps uh, as a closure. Um, that's definitely been a huge shift I've noticed because when I first came into wine education, people still thought that those wines must be cheap. So that perception has changed. Um, and I think probably the next stage is then to try and get consumers more engaged with other wine packaging formats which are less traditional but more environmentally friendly particularly when you're shipping them across large swathes of ocean so um yeah those are a few thoughts yeah I, I it's to me it's a really exciting time to be in the industry and also I think the consumer is getting savvier and uh wanting to 
as you said, explore different things, whether it's different formats or different countries and, you know, really to start to understand a little bit more about wine. We definitely see that over here with the American consumer for sure. Um, what is exciting to you right now? You know, what excites you the most about the industry? I think it probably is that uh, idea that people are, you know, not just going to stick to the, the the famous grape varieties, the famous brands that they are willing to, you know, take a risk uh, and go outside, go off the beaten track. Uh, that excites me because, you know, having spent all those years designing wine lists, I put so many, uh, I don't know what, what's particularly fashionable in the US, but here the three classics that have to be on every wine list are a Prosecco, a Malbec and a Pinot Grigio. <laughs> and uh, we sort of, we in one, in one of the bars that I worked with, we did actually remove Prosecco and replaced it with English sparkling wine. Ooh. We got a bit of kickback, but not too much. And so I find it exciting that people are willing to accept things like that. And because that's what I find the most exciting about wine is the very diversity of it. And I know you agree with me as a fellow wine lover, because, you know, uh, if you're always drinking the same wine, it just doesn't light you up. But uh, if you're thinking, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? What am I going to pair with it? And you have a sort of database of wine styles in your head that you've tried before, you can kind of scan through that mentally and think, what's going to go? What suits my mood? What suits the temperature? What suits the food? It's just so fun, isn't it? it? It's yeah, it is so fun. And I do. I am one of those drinkers that I will pair with you know, as you're saying, I will pair with what I'm eating. I'll also just be like, what's the weather? <laughs> what am I feeling right now? You know, it doesn't get that cold and that cloudy here in San Diego, but when it is kind of cold and cloudy, I'll sit on one of my patios, open up, you know, a nice bread, whether chilled or not chilled and sit outside with the, the heaters on. And, um, but yeah, it just depends on, uh, what, you know, I'm look, looking behind me because I have, um, an Albarino behind me from um, Santa Barbara County. Well, I'm going to say that, and it's not actually Santa Barbara County. Is it Santa Barbara County? Oh no, he's going to kill me if I'm talking about his wine. And I don't. <laughs> um, but it is it, outside of Santa Barbara County. There are these hills, and this Albarino he's making is incredible. Um, and it's I haven't seen anything like uh, the hills that he's making his wine on outside of. Uh, places in Europe. And so it's, it's really impressive what he's doing. And then the other wine I have behind me is uh, Clementine Carter. It's her Grenache um, also from uh, Lompoc, like right near where he is as well. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying that because it's so exciting to find these new or these varietals that have been around or, you know, these, these grapes that have been around, but they're popping up in new locations as well. And to get to taste them and see what their provenance is doing and their terroir is doing to these grape varieties. That's really exciting. And before I get too far down the path, uh, one of the, and I don't know, because I haven't been back to the UK um, for several years now, you know, I was supposed to go back and then pandemic hit. I was supposed to go to a wedding in France and then see friends in London. And I'm really disappointed. I wasn't able to go. And now it's, we're still in the pandemic. And I know you just reopened in the UK um, but one of the things that is like all the rage right now in every single restaurant, it feels like in America is Aperol spritz. <laughs> 
they are everywhere and it's like okay I get it but I feel like we're a little behind the trend but also it's like everywhere you see Aperol spritz and then I don't know Anne if you're seeing this in wine bars um, in London there are a couple of bars here in wine bars in San Diego that are solely natural wine bars and they also there's several restaurants that have wine on tap now yeah that is definitely um again when I was working with restaurants we were just getting to the stage of starting to explore for for the wine lists of the uh, clients I was working with wine on tap um I think it's a brilliant idea absolutely yeah. brilliant idea. it's a bit risky for me to have one of those at home I think so <laughs> I stay away from that personally but <laughs> well, well that and the other you know when um the pandemic hit all the restaurants and bars were scrambling to see, to figure out like, how can we still make money? And so they were all doing the, you know, ready to drink cocktails and selling them in different containers to the public. And so they got, were granted specific licenses depending upon the state or the city. Um, because, you know, America still acts like 50 different countries uh, when it comes to alcohol laws. So, um, you know, though that was like fun too, because you wanted, at least I wanted a good cocktail and I'm terrible at making cocktails. I'm really good at pouring a glass of wine or 10 glasses of wine, but I'm terrible at making cocktails. So being able to get like an actual cocktail that was from a local restaurant was such a treat and such pleasure, but now they're being really clever about what they do, the restaurants you know, what they do to continue that trade and continue enticing the customer, which they need to, you know, so many of them have not been able to reopen. And I don't know what's going on in the UK, if it's the same, um, but we have a a labor shortage here when it comes to hospitality. Is it the same? Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising, is it? You know, you lose your job for 18 months. Why would you think that was a viable industry? Of course, you're going to go off and look for something else during that time. Um, there was a statistic recently uh, that only about one third of the people who left the industry are interested in coming back to it. So, yeah, there's a massive shortage. Uh, restaurants all over London are putting out ads. And yeah. Yeah, I did see there was an article in The New York Times about London and what was happening in terms of, you know, certain really lauded or institutional restaurants not being able to reopen because of the shortage, but it really begs the question in terms of, and this, this, we could talk about it another time, but it begs the question in terms of how do we provide a living wage uh, and make it enticing for folks to be in the industry throughout the value chain. Um, You know, those who are working in the vineyards, uh, particularly here in America, we have a large um, migrant community who works the vineyards. um, And I know with, with, (laughs) Brexit, you, you're probably having a tough time too in terms of getting that labor that you need in the on the hospitality side and maybe in the vineyards down, you know, in the South Downs or, or the south, southern part of, of England. Yeah, I think it's a kind of double crisis that is, is that is hitting us. So I don't know how it's going to unfold, but yeah, governments need to realize, you know, that this industry can't survive without people to work in it. And as you say, they need to be well paid. Yeah, for sure. So that's, I mean, that's a topic that I think will continue as people who love this industry, all sides of it, you will continue to grapple with and talk about because there has to be some form of, of action taken. So speaking of kind of action in the industry, 
you know, historically, this industry hasn't been the most welcoming uh, to people of color, to women. Um, you know, what do you think, what accountability or what do you think the industry needs to do in order to create more equity and access for people to come in and to forge a career in the trade? Yeah, I think it's, it's it can be challenging to hold people accountable. Um, but what has become very clear over the last year is that with the rise and the growth of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, a lot more awareness has been brought to the industry as to all industries, which I think is a great start. Uh, and, uh, you know, for example, it was uh, the killing of George Floyd that, you know, just it prompted this huge level of awareness and prompted the Institute of Masters of Wine to form a diversity committee. And we're taking it very, very seriously. Um, there have just been two scholarships created uh, called the Golden Vines Scholarships, um, which are going to support um, two people of colour, one for the Master Sommelier qualification and one for the Master of Wine qualification to be fully funded through the whole qualification. So it's things like this, it's initiatives like that, which need to happen and keep happening. Uh, because yeah, I've read stories and accounts of people of color in the industry who have really struggled. It's, it's traditionally in this country anyway, it's traditionally a middle-aged white male industry. Um, so obviously I came into it as a woman, not a person of color, but as a woman. And I find that in, in the, the education side, it was kind of female dominant more than, uh, than, than male, but there were certainly large swathes of the traditional trade, uh, the kind of brokering departments, the fine wine trading departments that were very male dominated and it was very hard to get into those. Um, so, I mean, I can't speak for everyone's experience, but there's certainly something that needs to be addressed. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I appreciate that approach. What else do you think consumers need to be thinking about when they choose uh, what they're drinking or what they're picking up off the shelves? Um, and perhaps, you know, maybe about the industry as a whole that they, they may not be aware of. Yeah, for me, what I the message I'd like to get out to consumers is that oh, just like the whole the whole human aspect of wine the whole natural aspect of wine I think a lot of the big brands that consumers go for when they're new to wine um, you know a lot of the wine may taste very drinkable and delicious but it's kind of almost factory produced and you know comes from these you know massive irrigated vineyards that don't really, they don't relate to the, as you mentioned earlier, the terroir, they don't relate to the, to the sort of the soul of the land. There is no story behind it. What excites me more than the big brands, which are kind of almost factory made, uh, is small family vineyards. Uh, I like the idea that there are people who are the ones responsible for translating the potential of the terroir, the potential of, you know, the combination of that patch of soil and that vine variety, that just excites me. And I would absolutely love for consumers to explore more of that. Is, is there anything else you want people to know if they're considering 
taking the leap and making the decision to, to have a career in the wine and spirits industry, is there anything you want people to know or anything you want to tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think people consider it a very kind of glamorous lifestyle type of business and to an extent is, uh, but you have to be a little realistic about it and realize that overall it's quite a low margin business and, if you want to start at the bottom in the in the wine industry, you're not going to be very well paid, and you're probably you probably are going to have to come in at the bottom. Even if you're transitioning from another career, I've seen that a lot. You know, because because it is a glamorous lifestyle business and it's a product about which you can be very passionate. Um, people want to switch careers and then they realize they have to start at the bottom. And starting at the bottom usually means uh, either you work in the, the restaurant trade and hospitality or you work in production in a vineyard uh, or as I did you might go down the administrative route of joining the office of a wine merchant and kind of running all the uh, the office processes um, and a very common one in um, a city like London is to join the wine retail trade so you work on the shop floor and you advise customers about wine. So all of those four routes are ways into the industry. Uh, you could join through the marketing route as well. Um, but usually you're not going to kind of fly up the career ladder um, and you know make a ton of money at the beginning. That said, it is an immensely enriching and rewarding career. There are the exams and qualifications of the Wine and Spirit Education Trust and ultimately uh, the Master of Wine or the Master Sommelier route if you choose to go down that route. So there is a sort of career progression and it's very recognized when you have these qualifications. You know, you, you no longer need to explain yourself and the, the level of knowledge that you have. So you can actually forge a very enriching, satisfying and well-paid career if you're prepared to be persistent and stick at it and work really hard. Um, but I suppose that's what I would say, you know, at the beginning, uh, you can't expect to sort of jump ahead and suddenly earn loads of money. <laughs> Yes, very true. So what is in your wine fridge or what's your tipple of choice right now? Well, right now we're having a really unusual and bizarre heat wave in the UK, which, as you know, Amanda, having lived here, is not that frequent an event. Um, so in a heat wave, I gravitate towards really crisp, dry white wines. Uh, I'm thinking dry German Riesling. I'm thinking... Um, Sancerre, if I wanted to go something more something more classic. I'm thinking Provence Rosé. It's so fashionable at the moment and I love it. And my partner is actually from South India and we've discovered it goes really well with South, South Indian vegetarian cuisine. Uh, so we were quite into the rosé. Uh, I love a chilled Beaujolais in hot weather as well. Uh, and I did, as I mentioned earlier, I did my MW dissertation on Beaujolais. So I have a sort of soft spot for those wines. Uh, so, yeah, my wine fridge has got lots of that going on at the moment. Um, but, you know, I I'm a big fan of the classic French wine region. So I have lots of Rhone and Bordeaux and Burgundy in my collection as well. 
That's incredible. And so many options for folks as they're exploring different cuisines and really thinking about the flavors. And, you know, of course, we have something different over here in America, which generally those of you who live in the UK don't have, which is something called air conditioning. So folks might not know that when you're in a heat wave, it is hot, 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 because you generally don't have air con. (laughs) Yes, actually, I should have explained that. So yeah, we it's just London is just not set up for heat waves. Businesses have air conditioning, but homes do not. And it just can be really hard to even sleep at night, you know, so we need something cold and icy to drink in the evenings. And maybe like more than one glass to allow you to sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that certainly sends you right off to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a couple of things that you do, which are really exciting. And um, there's, there's a few ways that people can follow you and get in touch with you. So the first is for people who are pursuing the diploma, you have a program called Diploma Therapy. Can you share about what that is and where people can find you and join the program? Of course, yeah. So um, everything that I do is available on my website, which is annemichael.com. Um, and that's Michael is M-C-H-A-L-E and Anne with an E. Uh, so you can, if you're a diploma student, you can go to my website and there'll, there'll be a little header at the top, uh, where you can click to find out more. Um, I've just finished enrolling the latest round, So, um, you can join the waiting list to be kept notified of the next time I run it. Uh, but yeah, the, the name diploma therapy came from my own memories of studying for these exams and needing therapy, as I'm <laughs> sure you remember. So, that's for, that's how I coined the name. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's been a popular name because I think it resonates with people. Um, it's actually a very focused program, which, uh, covers only one module of the diploma, which when you and I took, it was known as unit three, which is worth 50% of the marks. And it's been changed. The name is, is D three, but it's broadly speaking the same exam. And, uh, it, it, for people who are already signed up to take that exam, my program offers extra support with study technique, exam technique, mindset, uh, how to get psychologically prepared for the exams, and how to be tactically prepared for the exams as well. Uh, we also look at things like you know, how to answer the questions, because if you don't come from the sort of British exam system, mm-hmm. it can be a bit Uh, confusing to work out what it is the examiners actually want you to say even if you know all the information so we we look at that a lot as well and I talk about ways that you can prepare very tactically for the testing exams Um, so it's been very popular there are people in centers all over the world now studying for this exam and the fact that I run the program online means that everybody can join so I run uh, sessions in different time zones and it's been really popular that's so great. And I'm, I'm so happy for you that you're doing that. I wish you would have had it for us when we were sitting <laughs> our exams, especially I think people don't think about that mindset piece. And, mm-hmm. you know, I come from the American system of exams, right. And, you know, just being able to have that crib sheet or that knowledge to know this is what a British examiner is looking for would have been super helpful when I was taking the exam. So we will make sure that people, we also put the, your website here and that people can go find you. And the other thing I hope that you're able to share, uh, is that you are, you do, um, offer tastings to the public. And also you have a program coming up, correct. That will be public facing. 
Yeah, yeah. So again, you can find that um, on my website. There's a, a section called New to Wine. And if you click on that, you'll get access to my uh, free mini video series and join my email list. And anyone who's on my email list will be the first to know when I release my first uh, online uh, course uh, all about wine. And it will be for people who are new to wine. And we'll really be going through all the essential things you need to know uh, to get more out of your glass of wine. Because my, my, my philosophy is that the more you understand about wine, the more pleasure you get from it. And I think that's been evident just with the passion with which you and I discuss wine. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't need to have a WSET diploma to get more pleasure out of wine. And I know that most people, um, you know, don't don't have time to go into that level of nerdy detail so my course will not be like that it will be very much the essentials that you need to know it will be fun it will be non-stuffy and non-boring uh, and it will cover yeah everything that you need to get more pleasure out of wine because I myself have actually started to cut back a little on the volume of wine that I drink just as I get older and my hangovers get worse <laughs> and um but because because of what I know about wine, I get so much joy out of each glass that it is possible to drink less but better quality wine and, and just have an experience every time you enjoy a glass. And that's what I want to get across to people in my course. Oh, that's great. And I, I can't wait till it launches. I might just take it because I could use a refresher. And also I, I wholly, I just want to say, I wholly agree with you. I think people sometimes are really daunted by wine. You know, you imagine you know, going to the store and there are so many options and oftentimes the options are in a foreign language. And if you don't speak that foreign language or if you don't know, you know, what's a Barbaresco or what's, you know, is that even Italian? Like, you know, it's really hard to navigate it. And I think people can't just stick with what they know or they get frustrated. So allowing people to find the joy and the pleasure and wine should be fun. You know, as you said before, there's a story in almost every bottle and there's somebody behind it. And that's the other reason why, you know, you and I share that similar passion is that I love the story and I love how fun it can be. And so I'm really happy you're bringing that to people so that they can find that as well. And they can gain the knowledge to be able to go to the store confidently, the wine shop, wherever they buy their wine from uh, it, or the cellar door or wherever they are and confidently and also enjoy it. So kudos to you. So I know it's, it's late in London. It's early here in California. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge, your passion, and talk to me. It's been far too long since we were connected, and now I'm happy that we're reconnected. And I appreciate everything you're doing and also honor you for being a badass woman who is forging her own way in the wine industry, which is still predominantly male. So kudos to you and, and thank you so much. And what we say here at the Vino Karma community is uh, please continue to go out there and create change in the world one sip at a time. Cheers. Cheers.